You turn with me, please, to the passage that we read together, Hebrews chapter 7. We might read verses 24 and 25. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And particularly uh, that last uh, uh, phrase, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. <clears throat> now the writer to the Hebrews up to this point has been exposing the inadequacies of the Levitical priesthood in various ways. He has been speaking of the fact that they are uh, hampered by the fact that they themselves, before they can make any offering to another, uh, uh, for another rather, must offer up a sacrifice for their own sins. So they come as sinful men, um, uh, interceding, as it were, on the behalf of sinful men. We have seen that another one of the problems of the priesthood um, uh, and of the sacrificial system had to do with the inadequacy of the blood of bulls and of goats that cannot take away sin and cannot purge the conscience from dead works, God-given um, and yet could not deal with the basic problem but pointing forward to that sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ that would ultimately and eventually uh, deal with the problem of sin. Here he is touching on the fact that one of the uh, further problems of the priesthood was the fact that they kept changing because one high priest would die and another had to take over. One could imagine uh, what that must have been like. Uh, we are told about Christ, who is a sympathetic high priest, and it may well have been that there were men who were sympathetic towards those who were coming to confess their sins, these ordinary um, uh, uh, high priests. And yet, all of a sudden, you would discover that they had passed away and you had to start all over again with someone new. You know what it's like if you've been with a doctor for 20 or 30 years and um, he uh, retires from the work or even passes away, and you feel as though you're having to start all over again with someone who doesn't understand you. Think of that in spiritual terms. Think of how it must have been for those um, uh, believers as they came uh, to worship at the tabernacle or the temple uh, to find that the one who understood them so well is no longer uh, there um, uh, to sympathize with them. And so we are introduced to this idea of a Melchizedek priesthood. And one of the things that uh, is emphasized throughout this chapter is that this is an everlasting priesthood. Melchizedek, the type, comes upon the scene in the book of Genesis, and he seems to appear out of nowhere, without father, without mother. It's not saying that he had no father or mother. It's saying that his genealogy was totally unknown. And he comes, 
and he appears on the scene and he seems to live forever because there's no record of his death. And he is, uh, we're being told that Christ, as a, a, the, um, a, the, the uh, realization, as it were, of the type of Melchizedek, has these qualities of perpetuality, that this is a high priest who doesn't die, that this is a high priest who endures forever, that this is a high priest who will never um, uh, weary and who will never cease to be there for the people of God as they come to him. And so we are encouraged with this, and uh, we are introduced to the nature of the Melchizedek priesthood. And uh, we are, uh, uh, or perhaps I should say, we are introduced to the nature of the fulfillment of the Melchizedek priesthood, who is able to make a, an offering, um, uh, and he doesn't need to make an offering for himself. Christ makes no self-offering. He offers himself, but makes no self-offering in the sense of offering for sins that belong to him, but he offers for the sake of his people. And uh, so there is this um, uh, uh, superiority stamped on the nature of the Melchizedek priesthood. There are no hindrances to him approaching God. There is no defect in the sacrifice that he offers because it's himself he's offering. And he is offering that which is, we read, holy, harmless, undefiled in a category all of its own. And here we are introduced to a further aspect of the Melchizedek priesthood or the fulfillment of the Melchizedek priesthood. And that is perpetual intercession. And that is what I want us to think about this evening, that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. When we think of the intercession of Christ, there is a sharp contrast between what the Bible teaches and what we see in um, uh, almost every other false religion. Every other false religion, if they have a head, um, a hero, um, a messiah of some sort, they are all looking to someone who is dead. And the Christian is looking to a high priest who ever liveth. There is a stark contrast. Now, why is that important? Because the Melchizedek priesthood of Christ offers or provides a living link with um, a living Savior and the finished and perfected work of that living Savior. It's not just a memory. The Christian is not just to reflect upon what happened at Calvary as though it were some historical fact and that's all that has got to do with it. It may have had an impact then, but days have moved on. He or she is called to reflect upon Christ as an ever-living Savior who is still engaged in his priestly activity. Not engaged, as we will see, in his priestly offering, but still engaged in his priestly activity. Now, why is this important? that we have this living link with the finished work of Christ. Because how often do we become discouraged? 
How often are we cast down because of our sins? How often do we wonder, can I be a Christian if I'm like this? How often do we struggle with assurance and sanctification? How often do we wonder if we are saved at all? And we are not called to reflect upon ourselves. We are called to reflect upon this ever-living Savior. This one who is alive. This one with whom we have fellowship and communion. This one who is still active on our behalf, making continual intercession for us. Without this intercession, dear friends, there would be no assurance, there would be no sanctification, and there would be no salvation for any one of us. And this um, uh, makes the, uh, our, our faith a matter of daily dependence upon the living Lord. If he is ever living, we ought to be ever living upon him. It's like the vine and the branches. If he is the living uh, vine, if we want to be a living branch, we must be living in him. And so we are reminded of this work um, uh, of um, uh, intercession that the uh, uh, Savior carries on. Now, Christ's work as mediator in respect to his offering is a finished and perfect work. But his, his work as mediator is not complete until he takes the blood of the sacrifice and enters into the holiest of holies. In other words, we are to think of this as a continuation of that finished work. Uh, that sounds like a, a contradiction. That is a contradiction. But we are to think about um, uh, this intercession as so closely intimate, uh, uh, interconnected with his work on earth that the one would not be per perfected without the other. And so Christ, having given himself, uh, takes the blood of his sacrifice and he enters into the holy place made without hands. Now you might say, where do you get that from? Well, you get it not only from the letter to the Hebrews, but you get it in the Old Testament type. Because the high priest was there when the atonement day lamb was slaughtered. But that wasn't the end. The offering was made. And in that sense, it was finished. But the priestly work was not finished. For the priest was to take the blood of the sacrifice and go into the holiest of holies. And there were uh, two things he had to do there. Well, three perhaps. He had to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. He had to burn incense, and he had to intercede for the people. And we know from the book of the Revelation how the incense and the prayer of Christ are brought together as that which enables the prayer of his people to ascend to heaven. And so here is but the pattern 
of what we see in the Old Testament type, that Christ finished the earthly priestly offering, but the presentation of that offering was not completed until Christ comes into the holiest of holies made without hands and offers up that blood offering. And then he sits down at the right hand of God. And yet at the same time, there are passages in the scripture that says he's standing. How do we tie these two together? He is sitting with respect to his offering. And he is standing with respect to his intercession. He is sitting because the work of offering is done. It's finished. He has given himself a ransom for his people. But his priestly activity of intercession goes on and on and on. And so he is, on the other hand, pictured as standing at the right hand of God. And so we are to remember the close connection between the offering of Christ and the intercession of Christ. The intercession of Christ is part of his priestly activity. Now we should see that easy enough from John 17. We see how Christ interceded um, uh, as a priest, as the mediator in John 17. We have that wonderful insight into the prayer of Jesus. What a privilege we have. The only um, uh, extensive record of Christ's prayer. He tended to go into private to pray. He tended to uh, pray in secret. But here in John 17, the door is open to us. We see him praying. We see him um, uh, uh, interceding for his people. I pray for them. And we'll touch on that in a moment. But the verse um, uh, that we, the verses, this verse speaks of the ongoing aspect of that work that was seen in heaven. In other words, the offering ceases, but the intercession continues, and it continues forever. And what was it, um, uh, 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 why was it necessary, uh, should we say? Why uh, do justified men and women need an intercessor? Why do we need Christ to intercede for us every day, every moment, as it were? Well, stop and think about it for a moment yourself. And I'm sure you will ac accept that were you left without the intercession of Christ for but a moment, you would fall. I have prayed for you, he says to Peter, that thy faith fail not. And if there had been no prayer, he would have, he would have failed. And that is the, tr the, the, tr the truth concerning us. We have imperfect inclinations. We may have holy inclinations, but they're imperfect. We may have a desire to please God, but we want to please ourselves. We know only too well that we have graces if we're Christians, and yet how we bemoan the, uh, the, 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 the smallness of those graces, the lack of use we put those graces to, it's obvious to any saved sinner 
that we need the ongoing intercession of Christ. And uh, we are reminded that we are never, even in a justified state, fit to stand before God on our own. And so he intercedes for us. Is there sanctification needing to be carried out? He intercedes for us. Is there a sin to be resisted? He intercedes for us. Are we uh, afraid and lacking assurance? He intercedes for us. Are we being tempted to some gross sin? He intercedes for us. And this is the ongoing work of the Savior throughout all eternity. And this intercession, we notice, is carried out in our nature. In chapter 5, I think it is, of Hebrews, uh, the writer speaks of the necessity of the high priest being taken from amongst men. And that is to emphasize the reason why Christ became a man. Men had sinned. The only way in which there could be a, 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 an acceptable sacrifice for sin was for a man to offer himself. And the only way a man could offer himself was to be a priest. And so he is the priest. And he is holy and harmless. And he comes in this Melchizedek priesthood. And he offers himself without spot to God. He um, uh, is uh, taken from amongst men. And he is able to offer up both gifts and sacrifices for his people. And when you stop and think about this intercessory work of Christ, uh, we are reminded that he is there in the holiest of holies, in the holy place made without hands. He is in the presence of Almighty God. He is in an exalted and glorified condition, and he is there for his people. It's not a comfort to you, dear friends, that the very presence of the God-man Jesus Christ in heaven at God's right hand is a guarantee of your being there with him if you are in him. What a comfort that is. You see, it doesn't boil down to how good I am at pursuing sanctification. It doesn't boil down to how strong is my assurance. It's not a question of how great and deep is my faith. It is where is Christ my intercessor? And he is at God's right hand. And he is interceding to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And they will all arrive. <coughs> no one will be missed when he makes up his jewels. When he constructs that crown that royal diadem, all will be present with the Lord. What are the implications of the fact that his intercession is carried out in our nature? Well, the writer to the Hebrews goes on to speak about it. He is in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. I'm sure I've mentioned this before. Modern day thought is, if you want to be helpful to someone, you've got to know exactly what it is to do that bad thing. And so drug addicts speak to drug addicts. 
people with ruined marriages try and help people that, whose marriages are being ruined. We don't want that kind of saviour. We want a saviour without sin. And Christ is that kind of saviour. There's no spot in him. There's no defect in him. And so he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows what it is to go through a marriage breakup. He knows what it is to go through um, a struggle with drugs. He knows what it is in all of these things because he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. It's not to say that he's gone through these things in the particular, but he knows them. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be despised and rejected. And because of all of that, we are told we have a sympathetic high priest. What a thought. How often are we afraid to go to Jesus to confess our sins? How often are we reluctant to unburden ourselves? We're ashamed. We are humbled, perhaps, at the very thought that we have to come to God and confess our sins. And behind all that, there is ultimately a question mark over, will he be compassionate? Will he accept me? Dear friends, come and see, because he is a compassionate high priest. Compassionate high priest. And so we are reminded um, of him, his compassion. We are a reminder of where he is. He is in heaven. What better place could you intercede for the people of God but at the right hand of God? And he is there for his people. You think of the wonder and grace of God. It's a reminder to us that human nature inherently, that is, in and of itself, is not sinful. Because Christ is there in sinless human nature at the right hand of God. It's only sinful human nature that is sinful. And so Christ takes a true body and a reasonable soul. He takes a real human nature and yet it has no sin. Wonder of wonders. And he is reminding us that the day will come when having dealt with all that makes our human nature sinful will be removed, that we will be with him in glory. And so he is there reminding us, Rabbi Duncan, I'm sure you've heard this often enough, Rabbi Duncan in speaking of this says, the dust of the earth is on the throne of the universe. What a wonderful thought that is. What an encouraging thought that is. And then we are reminded that this intercession, I've mentioned it in the beginning of the, the, the sermon, but this intercession is based upon the finished work of Christ. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. It is based upon, founded upon, tied inextricably to the atoning, finished work of Christ. His obedience, his merit, his sacrifice on the cross is the basis of all his requests on the behalf of his people. I have finished the work 
that thou gavest me to do. And that is how he begins in the upper room discourse. He speaks about this finished work. And as he is before the Father, isn't it wonderful the way the book of the Revelation portrays him? Now, this is symbolism. We know that. But symbolism has a meaning. And he is portrayed as a lamb that had been slain from the foundation of the world. So here we have this picture of the high priest who makes continual intercession for us. And he is in the presence of God like a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And this reminds us that there is before the Father a perpetual exhibition of his sacrifice. Now notice what I said. A perpetual exhibition of his sacrifice. It's not a perpetual sacrifice. It's the perpetual evidence or exhibition that he gave himself. Because he's a lamb and when you look at him, you know he's been sacrificed. And so we are reminded of the fact that as he stands before the Father in his intercessory priestly work, it is as one who has given himself, one who has finished the work, one who has done all that is necessary for us. And therefore, um, uh, there's a sense in which the atonement itself is intercession. The crucified Christ before the Father in his glorified state in itself is part of that intercession. It's not just what he pleads for, but in that appearance, it is an evidence of what he pleads upon. And so he is interceding for us on the basis of his finished work. And that finished work is acceptable to the Father because this whole matter has to be traced back to the covenant of grace, has to be traced back to that, re that, um, uh, that um, agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, in which Christ would come and take a true body and a reasonable soul and give himself a ransom for his people, and as a result would secure them forever from the condemnation of sin and would ultimately uh, bring them to glory. And so, uh, we don't have time to go into it, but there is um, uh, the, the finished work. The finished work, if you will, is based upon the covenant of grace. And this intercession of Christ on the basis of his finished work, it is an authoritative intercession. He has the right to intercede. You remember the psalm we sung, Ask of me and I will give. He is commanded by God, Ask of me and I shall give. And what he asks for is what he deserves. Now we speak of Christ pleading and that is the word that is used. It is a word um, uh, that uh, we might translate as begging. But that is not a uh, 
a, a suitable way of understanding. It is the way of asking for, for requesting what is his right. And so he asks for this one, for that one. He asks that the Gentiles will come to the light and kings to the brightness of his rising. He asks that there would be those who kiss the sun um, lest they perish from the way. He asks, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. He asks that Peter would be kept, that his people would be preserved throughout all their life until at last they're brought to glory. Do you see it, dear friends? He is asking for his heritage. And there is no reluctance in the Father to give it. Not a scrap of reluctance. He is ascended up on high. He leads captivity captive. He receives gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell among them. He receives. He gets from the Father. And he pours out upon the church what he has received. And though then, if we think of this intercession, if we take our pattern for this intercession uh, from the uh, 17th chapter of John, we can say that his intercession is for particular people and particular things. It's not just a random, um, oh Lord, save everybody. It's not just a random, Lord, forgive all my sins, um, uh, or all their sins, rather. No, this, notice the context here. He is um, uh, the one um, uh, who is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. There are the constituency, or there is the constituency of his intercessory prayer. It is those who come unto God by him. Indeed, if you have doubt about that, if you think that is too restrictive, then go to John 17, where he says specifically, I pray not for the world, but I pray for them that thou hast given me. And so we have Christ, and he is interceding for his church. Dear friends, when we speak about God being for us, this is what it means. Christ is for his church. He is praying for his church. When we say that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, it is because Christ is assuring his church that he is asking and he will receive for his church all that is necessary for the church to survive to the end of time. And so he prays for particular people. He prays for particular things. You think of some of the things that we can say from John 17 that he prays for. He prays for preservation. Keep them through thy word. He prays for unity, that they may be one as we are one. He prays for their sanctification, that they might be holy. He prays for their future, that they might um, be brought at last to glory. He prays for their glorification, that they might be with him where he is. 
Do you see the kind of things that the Savior prays for? In other words, anything that is necessary for a saint of God to get from earth to heaven, Christ prays for and Christ receives. Now let's stop for a moment and reflect. If that is true, then we have to acknowledge that there are times when Christ prays for things that we think are bad. We sometimes have bad experiences, bad providences. But that's only because we're looking at them from a ground-level perspective. We're not seeing things the way Christ sees them. Why didn't Jesus pray that Peter wouldn't be tempted? Why did he pray that his faith fail not? Could Christ have prayed that Peter wouldn't be tempted? Of course he could. Was Christ allowing this temptation to go ahead? Of course he was. Well, what does that mean? It's the reality of what Paul speaks about in Romans 8. All things work together for good. Even those dark providences, dear friends, that you have to face in your life, those struggles, those trials, perhaps a lack of assurance, perhaps a fall into sin, all of these things are encompassed within the intercessory prayer of Christ and therefore cannot be ultimately bad for us. Cannot be ultimately bad for us because Christ is our intercessor. And so though the next time we are tempted to think, God, why have you done this to me? Thank God that he knows better than we do. And in that intercession, he is praying that the spiritual sacrifices of his people would be accepted on the basis of his work. Before we came to Christ, we couldn't do any spiritual work. We couldn't have any truly spiritual thought. In Christ, we have the mind of Christ. We are able to think spiritual things spiritually. We are able to discern spiritual things in a spiritual way. We have the word of God open to us. Now this isn't our doing. This is the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. And we have the word of God being open to us. Before we came to Christ before we were saved, no matter if we gave our bodies to be burned, there was no spiritual merit in that. But in Christ, our paltry, our small, our insignificant efforts in holiness are acceptable in the Beloved. It's not that they're perfect. Our praises to God are accepted not because they have no sin in them. It is because as we offer our sacrifices of prayer and thanksgiving, 
They are mingled with the incense from the altar of Christ's sacrifice. And they are acceptable to God. It's never a waste of time, dear friends, even to try and do something for the Lord. You remember the anointing of Christ, what Jesus said to his disciples. She has done what she could. It might not be the best. It might not have been altogether without ulterior motives, but she has done what she could. And that's what we should be doing, doing what we can. Not because we think that we are going to win brownie points, but because Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to cover all the inconsistencies and the sins and the unfaithfulnesses that we bring along with it. And we are accepted in the Beloved. And the last thing I want you to notice is this, that this intercession is continuous and successful. How long has Christ been interceding for his people? Well, I'm not going to make a dogmatic statement, but certainly since the fall. At least since the fall. I don't want to say too much on that. And in glory, I believe it never ceases. Never ceases. We will always need the intercessory work of Christ. We will always need to be standing in him. There'll never come a moment when we are so glorified that we have a self-glory. Anything we have is always in Christ. And it's successful. Notice what the text says. He is able. He is able also to save them to the uttermost. There is an an eternal efficacy of his offering. The lamb slain from before the foundation of the world never grows old. He always will be as the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. That is the foundation rock upon which the church stands. And his intercession will not diminish because we are told that this intercession is perpetual. He ever liveth. He is ever the righteous advocate on the behalf of his people. He is ever coming before his father and pleading for them on the basis of the father's own eternal love to his people. Christ is interceding for that, uh, for that which to the father is a good thing because it's his will that they be saved. Thine they were. Thou gavest them me. I have kept them. I am praying for them. You will keep them. You will bring them home. And then you think of um, how we can apply this pastorally. Dear friends, do you have problems with a lack of assurance? Do you find that your own conscience condemns you and it reminds you of how sinful you are and how inadequate you are? Do you have a sense of felt weakness 
when you seek to draw near to God? Do you lack security of your soul in Christ? What is the answer, dear friends? It's not to look within. It is to look to him who is at the right hand of God. And yet at the same time, and here's where you need double vision, you need to look to him at the right hand of God and remember that he gave himself a ransom for his people on earth. And they both come together. And Christ, on the basis of what he did for his people, makes the intercession. Do you need help with lack of assurance? Ask Christ. Do you need help for your weakness as a Christian? Ask Christ. The disciples said, strengthen our faith. It's interesting, isn't it? They didn't come and say, I wonder if I've got faith at all. They come and ask that their faith might be strengthened. That's what we need. The intercessory work of Christ. What a comfort it is for his people. (coughs) This is the one of whom John speaks when he says, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Isn't that a wonderful thing, that he is the propitiation? You see the coming together of the advocacy of Christ in his intercession, and the, pro- the propitiation, the sacrificial work of the Savior. <coughs> Both are essential. One is not complete without the other. But glory be to God, the work is a finished and yet ongoing work. The sacrifice, the offering is over, and the intercession will never end. Let us pray. Father, we bless thee and we thank thee for the kindness of thy grace and mercy to us. And we thank thee for what thy word reminds us of concerning the Savior. We thank thee that he came into this world and gave himself for his people. And we would ask, O Lord, that thou would grant to his grace that we might rejoice this day in what he has done. O Lord, if there are any amongst us who do not know of Christ as Savior, who have not the um, uh, uh, known the benefits <coughs> of his intercessory ministry, draw them with the cords and bands of love, we pray. Draw them to thyself. Open their eyes to see Christ in his mediatorial glory and in his um, uh, saving beauty and cause them to close in with him and uh, to believe uh, that he is able to save them to the uttermost. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let us conclude singing from Psalm 68 and at verse 18. Psalm 68 at verse 18. Thou hast, O Lord, most glorious, ascended up on high, and in triumph victorious led captive captivity. Thou hast received gifts for men, for such as did rebel, yea, even for them that God the Lord in midst of them might dwell. Verses 18 to 20 of Psalm 68.
stand for the benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.